I don't know if you're sad about this. Uh, I kind of am. We're coming to the end of Mark's gospel. <laughs> I feel like Mark has just kind of become a good friend, a good friend to us, a good friend to this church, good friend to my life. And um, it's all right. There's so many good friends here uh, in the Bible. I know I just had you uh, sit down, <laughs> but we do love to stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 16. And while you're finding your place there, um, you know, I'm going to end at verse 8 because uh, all scholars say after verse 8 was something that was added to this gospel, and that doesn't make it untrue, uh, but it's not uh, what Mark wrote. And we're looking at um, the inspired words that God wrote through Mark, which end at verse 8. Um, you're going to see that, that the ending of this gospel is is it's very abrupt, it's, it's strange, which is why I think they already in the second century felt like we need to finish this thing. It needs a better ending. Um, but I actually don't think it's that strange. I think it ends abruptly because this story does not end in Mark 16. The story of Jesus and his kingdom and new creation has reached us all the way here in the 21st century. And now we are part of the story and we get to finish it. Mark 16, when Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early, on the first day of the week, just as the sun was rising, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb, and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who is crucified. He has risen. He has risen, and he is not here. See the place where they have laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter. Two of the most moving two words in the Bible for me. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out. They fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is God's word. You can be seated. So let me start with this question. I think it's an important question for today. What does it actually mean that Jesus was resurrected? What does it mean? Verse two, I love how Mark is, he's very literary. He's putting these little details in here to help tell his story. And verse two should read, on the first day of the week, as the sun was rising, and I think the reason why Mark is, is, is using uh, the, this, this detail here 
is because he's trying to cause our imagination to go back to the very first Sunday of the world, the first day of creation, because go back with me to that first day when all there was was a darkness that was so deep that the only Hebrew word that could be used to describe is tohu vevohu, is chaos. And you read in Genesis 1 on that first day how light just exploded into that darkness and how God unleashed his kingdom upon the tohu vevohu. And out of that chaos came order and beauty and a world that became the most beautiful song where absolutely every piece and part, every living thing emanated the glory of God. And listen, our minds can't even imagine such a world. I mean, you can take the best sunset, you can take the best friendship, the best marriage, you can take the most intoxicating experience, the purest of anything our world has to offer, but all those things are but a small, small hint of the world that God made. And what made that world so incredibly special is right in the center of it was this, this garden that God uh, planted and it became the place where God lived, where God made his home. And in that garden, he placed uh, one that he made in his own, own image, an image bearer. And then he placed another image bearer. And here they made their home together. And this is, this is the tragedy of sin. Sin desecrated the glory of God's creation. It divorced us from that garden. It divorced us from God. It brought disease, decay, leading to death. And the entire world fell into desolation. And our world right now is but a shadow, just a shadow of God's truest intent. But Mark's gospel is here to tell us that Jesus came to deal with that. And his gospel is all moving towards these words, these exciting words on the first day. Because this isn't just any first day of a week. This isn't just any Sunday. This is the first day of new creation, of God through his king, recreating, restoring, resurrecting a world that he loves. And so what we have with Jesus and the resurrection, a new age has dawned. A new epoch is here. It's God moving into the chaos. God moving into the, the, the tohu vevohu and replacing the disease, the decay, and even death itself with his shalom and his glory. I love the detail of that sun rising on this first day because Again, just like the first day of creation, light is once again breaking into the darkness. The son of righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. Powerful imagery. In fact, let me indulge you uh, in, in another detail of Mark's gospel. Um, it's not in our text, but I cannot leave Mark's gospel without giving you this detail because uh, his whole gospel uh, hinges, hangs on, on, on a word um, it's a word that Mark uses at the beginning. Uh, we, re we, in, um, 
interpret it with two English words, and it's also a word at the end. Um, it's, it's what we interpret it as ripped open. And right at the beginning of Mark's gospel at Jesus' uh, baptism, uh, Mark gives us this, this important detail that when Jesus was baptized, when he came up out of the water, that the heavens were literally ripped open. And Mark's giving us the detail, say, this is what my gospel's about. Heaven's being ripped open and heaven is now coming down and heaven is being unleashed upon the earth. And then that same word ripped open is used at the end of Mark's gospel. And this time it occurs right when Jesus dies, when he breathes his last breath, Mark says at that moment, uh, the curtain in the temple uh, the curtain, that behind that curtain was literally God's living room. It, it's, it's the garden of the Lord. It, it's the place that worshipers could draw near, but they could never enter. And when Jesus died, Mark gives us this detail that that curtain from top to bottom was ripped open. For what reason? The author of Hebrews says, so through the blood of Jesus Christ, we now have access to that garden. We get to go right into the garden of God. And then when you add Pentecost to this, it means God can come right into us, which means the most amazing thing today. We are the garden of the Lord. We are the garden of God. And I, 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 I hope some of these realities uh, take our breath away um, because whether you know this or not, our, our, our hearts right now long for that garden. We long for it. This is why whenever we experience uh, something in this world that's, that's so satisfying, uh, it, it could be something that's just unbelievably scenic. It, it could be the most satisfying relationship. It could be a moment that is just so good where you're just left saying, is this real? <laughs> And how we just desperately, we seek these realities and how we desperately try to hang on to them um, if we ever experience them. Look around, everybody's looking for this. Everybody's seeking it. Everybody's pursuing it. All the striving, why? It's because we long for that garden. We're all trying to get back in because we weren't made for this world as it is right now. Everything in this world is but a shadow. It is a parched and desolate land. And this is the amazing hope of the resurrection. It's the hope that God in Christ is making all things new and that he, when Jesus was raised from the dead, has begun this work of restoring, recreating, resurrecting a world that he so loves to its former glory. And let me tell you what this means for us personally. I think this is pretty significant. If you read 1 Corinthians 15 today, which would be a great text to read, I'll just give you this, these verses. Paul talking about the resurrection, he says, since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection also comes through a man, Christ. For in Adam, we all die, but in Christ, we will all be made alive. And I want us to hear what, what, what Paul is telling us here. It means that uh, we're not only gonna be made alive in Christ, but we're gonna be made alive in Christ as Christ is being made alive on Easter. 
so that everything that we see happening to, to Jesus on Easter is, is our hope. It's, it, it's what God is, is going to someday do for us. I want us to know that Jesus' resurrection is not a resuscitation. I want us to know that, that, that what comes out of the grave uh, on Easter is not a ghost that just kind of floats around. In fact, when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus following the resurrection, I mean, there's actually some kind of strange stories there. Jesus, we know he can be seen, he can be touched, he can be felt. He eats food, he walks, he leaves footprints. And yet he's not recognizable. He even enters doors uh, through locked doors. He, he appears, he disappears. He's clearly living in a whole new dimension, but not as some bodiless person. He's actually more physical. He's more material, but he's not bound by it. This is the risen, glorified Christ. And God will one day do the same for us. From the old, he will create something altogether new. And it doesn't even stop with us. God is gonna do for the entire cosmos what he did for Jesus on Easter Sunday. That's why Romans 8 talks about how all of creation is, is in this groaning and it waits in this eager expectation to be liberated from its bondage to decay because God is going to liberate it too and restore it. I'm just curious, is, is this your vision for what God is doing in the world right now? Because he is. Is this what you could give testimony to what God is even doing in you? Is this your hope? Is, 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 is this the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning? Because resurrection, new creation has already begun. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we as followers of Jesus Christ, we're participating in this right now. And we're in partnership with God to bring it to a world that he loves. So now the question becomes, who is this for? Well, in our text, uh, we see that the news of Jesus' resurrection is first given to women. Verse one, uh, Jesus, it's, it's Mary Magdalene, it's, it's Mary the mother of James and, and, and Salome, uh, all three women. And I'm just wondering, uh, does this matter? Is this significant? Or is it a coincidence? Well, let me just add this. A, a woman in that day couldn't even be a witness in court. Um, her defense actually held zero weight. A Greek philosopher in the second century, very famous one, uh, he's someone who attacked the claims of Christianity. Uh, one of his primary attacks is, he, he says, Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And then he says, and we all know that women are hysterical. I didn't say that, he did <laughs> and it wasn't even just uh, the, the Greek culture that, that thought this in this time, but the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, the writings of the rabbis that were on par with the very word of God. In the Talmud, it says, the vows of testimony apply to men, but not to women, for women are invalid as witnesses. And again, this is just the way it was in that day. Women were marginalized. They had little status. They had little power. 
And yet God doesn't care about that. Especially when it comes to Jesus, because when it comes to Jesus, it's women. When the men deserted Jesus, the women stayed. They stayed right at the cross, right to the very end. And now in our text today, it's women who are going to the tomb. And then when you even look back further, uh, the first uh, announcement that God makes uh, that of the Christ, it's, it, it's to women. Um, and then the first to be told the good news of the resurrection, if you go down to the verse that we didn't read in verse nine, when Jesus rolled early in the first day of the week, he appeared, appeared first to Mary Magdalene, it's to a woman. And not only does he appear to Mary Magdalene, but we know from other gospel accounts that uh, she is the first one who is who is gifted with the good news of the gospel. And she's the first one who's charged by Jesus to be an apostle, to be a sent one, go and tell. Or how about this? In in Hebrews 11, verse 35, it says, women received their dead back. And I had to actually think about that this week. Is that really true? (laughs) And so I just look back on all the resurrection accounts in, in, in the Bible and Sure enough, every time it's, it's, it's women who receive their dead back. Even in the New Testament, it's Mary and Martha who receive Lazarus. It's the widow of Nain who receives her son back. Is this a coincidence that women received their dead back? I don't think so. Because when it comes to the gospel of King Jesus, the first to always understand and receive this king, it's not the strong, it's not the self-sufficient, it's not the powerful, it's always the powerless, it's the weak, it's the poor. They're always the first. They're not just the first, but they're also the ones that flock to him, take hold of him, who love him. We have to ask, why is this? Let's not forget what the gospel is. It's something as awesome as Easter. It's it's women receiving their dead back. It's the power of God to to redeem and to restore and to resurrect. And then when you think about how the God of the universe offered this gospel, it's offered through one who lays aside his power. It's through the all-powerful God who lays aside all his authority and becomes powerless. And that's not only the way that the God of the universe offers the gospel, but in the same way it's offered is the same way that it's received. The gospel is received by those who are willing to give up power, by those who are willing to surrender their lives, who are willing to give up control. This is why I think for people on top, for people who run things, for people who have lots of means, it's hard for them to actually take hold of Christ. It's actually hard for them to even have a desire for Christ because they have a very difficult time letting go of their perceived power and their perceived control over life. The Bible says women, women received their dead back because it's the powerless, the marginalized. It's those who know their actual need. They are the ones who over and over again, they are the ones who get it. They are the ones who take hold of Jesus. They are the ones who receive this this awesome powerful reality of the gospel. It's because they desperately seek it. And we have it in our text today. The text that's after the text, verse nine, Mary Magdalene. 
It even says here, Mary, Mary Magdalene in verse nine, out of whom Jesus uh, drove out seven demons. We know Mary Magdalene. We know that um, she's a woman with a past. She's a woman with a reputation. She's a woman that lived much of her life with a scarlet letter. Uh, she's a woman that knows her need. Resurrection is for her. It's first for her. And then think about those disciples. I mean, uh, verse seven, Jesus says, go and tell, go and tell my disciples. And I, I just think about this. I mean, it was just a few days before this. The last time that Jesus was with the disciples, the last time the disciples were with Jesus, these guys were, were deserting him. They were running away from him. Even Peter, he was, he was denying him. And so you'd almost expect Jesus to say, hey, ladies, could you uh, go tell my disciples that I'm really upset. I'm really upset with them. In fact, I'm very deeply, deeply disappointed in them. It's not what Jesus says. He says, go tell my disciples. I want to see them. In fact, I love Matthew's account because Matthew's account says, has Jesus saying, go tell my brothers and then Mark's gospel here, Mark, of course, is the one who's penning it, but he's, he, the, the, the one who's actually authoring it is Peter. And so Peter through Mark puts this incredible detail, go tell my disciples and tell Peter. Why does Jesus single out Peter? You know why. Peter's failure was enormous. It was embarrassing. It was disqualifying. And those two words, and Peter, tell us so much about Jesus. A bruised reed, he will not break. But can you just imagine the next scene? I see the disciples just sitting around. I see Mary, Mary rushing in the door. I hear just saying, I saw him. I saw him, you guys. He is alive. My hands touched him. And I can just be like, what? Yes, he's alive. And he wants to see you guys. He, he, he wants you to meet him in Galilee. And I can just see Peter. The first guy to just, his heart just wanted to steal. Yes, yes but I don't think he ever got to that spot. I think his heart just sank. And I think that voice just started to go off in his head. You loser, Peter. You blew it. You disqualified yourself. You messed up big time. You're out of this. In fact, I can almost hear Peter saying to the other disciples, hey guys, you guys, you guys go without me. I can't, I can't be there. You guys know what I've done. I'm finished. And then I just hear Mary saying, Peter, Peter, the master, he, he singled you out by name. Literally, he did. Peter, he wants to see you. This is Jesus. 
This is the gospel. It's in Peter. And I don't know if there's any, anyone here today who's steeped into failure, feels like a failure. Talk to so many people who are just, just rocked with just this, this shame of, 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 of failing. Maybe, maybe, maybe you've made a mess of your life. Maybe uh, you failed some of the people around you. Maybe even today you feel like you've failed God, that you've just let God down. I want you today to see the heart of Jesus because this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus singles us out, but not to shame us, but in our moment, in our season of greatest failure to say, and Peter, and Rod, I believe in you. I accept you. I forgive you. I love you. I want you to be a part of me. In fact, even way before we repent, even way before we're, we're, we're cut to the heart on our failure, Jesus is already singling us out. He's already calling us by name. He's already calling us brother. And this is the gospel. This is why we, we sing the song that we sung on Good Friday and we sang it because some lady halfway through our Good Friday service said, can we please sing Amazing Grace? And so we sang it because this whole thing is about amazing grace. God's love is not something that we earn. His forgiveness, his acceptance, his delight, his, his literally being ravished with us is not because of anything that we are or anything that we've done. It's because of who he is. It's what he has done. And so the resurrection today, it's, it's, it's for anybody. I mean, just look at Peter. I mean, here's the guy, literally, uh, as we've gone through Mark's gospel, I don't think he showed that well. Uh, Jesus is constantly instructing him. Sometimes uh, Jesus has to even rebuke him. And then it all culminates with Peter just flat out denying Jesus. And if you know that story, it's literally, I never blankety, blankety, blank knew that man. But these words, and Peter, is where it all changes. This is when Peter changes. This is when he is resurrected. This is when Peter's life is resurrected. This is when his place with Jesus is resurrected. In fact, two months from this actual story, Peter will be standing on the temple steps uh, preaching Christ to thousands of people and 3,000 people will give their life to Christ that day. And then just a little bit later, he'll be standing before Herod's. He'll be standing before uh, Supreme Courts with such authority. And then you could even make the argument that as you look at, at, at Peter's life and his ministry uh, from here on forward, like he becomes the greatest leader in the whole uh, Christ movement. And I'll tell you why he becomes the greatest leader. It's because his failure is the biggest causing his repentance to be the deepest and therefore his grasp of grace, the greatest. The one who's been forgiven much is the one who loves much. See, the biggest repenters are always the best leaders. The biggest repenters are the best counselors, the best fathers, the best mothers, the best husbands, the best wives. The biggest repenters are 
the best of friends or the best teammates. And yet some of us here today, maybe many of us are, are unwilling to admit our failure for the simple reason of pride. And so what you do is you just project and, and, and you project your failure on other people. You constantly blame others. You, you blame your parents, you blame your bosses, you blame your circumstances, you blame coaches, teachers, pastors, politicians. Some of us even today are blaming God. And we do everything then that we can to, to, to say, I failed, I blew it, I messed up. Tim Keller had a tweet this week that probably sums up this whole sermon. He says, we hate admitting that we've failed. We'll do everything we can other than to say, I am a failure and to take responsibility. And then he says, do you know why? Because it feels like a death. And he's so right. Acknowledging failure, it feels like a death. And the reason it feels like a death is because it is a death. And why do we avoid death? Because oftentimes we think of death as the end, but death in light of Easter is only the beginning. It's the beginning to new life, to resurrection life. And this is why Tim Keller ends this, this whole tweet. He says, but if you let your failure drive you deeper into the gospel, it will become a resurrection. And here's where I wanna again ask the question, has resurrection happened in your life? Is is it happening right now? And I have to believe in a room this size that there are people today who need resurrection. Maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's your past, maybe it's your present. Maybe your joy needs resurrecting. Maybe it's your character. And I'll tell you the surest way to miss out on the resurrection the surest way to bring death to yourself and death to people around you is to blame, is to be a victim, is to keep insisting that you're the good person and everybody else the bad person. Why do you think our world today is becoming so miserable, so joyless, so lifeless? And yet on the flip side, the surest way to, to develop emotional and relational and spiritual maturity and fortitude is to own failure, all of it, both big and small, to admit your mistakes, confess your sins, and then to repent. And Tim Keller's right. It will feel like a death, but before any resurrection, there's always a death. And think about everything we have today in Christ. We have someone that we can bring all of our mistakes. He knows us from the top to the bottom of, of, of our whole entire uh, entity. Bring our sins. I mean, look at Mary, look at Peter. All we have to do is bring it to him and he'll turn it into a resurrection. And not just even with failure, we don't just even just throw our failure into him, but what about our life? Have, have you thrown your life into Jesus? I think that's a pretty important question to ask today. Has your life been buried with him? Because this is who the resurrection is for. 
And I think a lot of us say, yeah, of course I've thrown my life into Jesus, but, but have you really? Have you really thrown your life into Jesus? Or, or maybe I should ask it from this, this angle, what in your life right now is being resurrected? Can you, can you give testimony today of God resurrecting you, of God resurrecting your joy, of God resurrecting your past, of God resurrecting your marriage, of God resurrecting your character? Can you? Are we a church that wants Easter? The reality of Easter, of course we do. And here's how we can have it crossroads. Number one, we just need to lay aside our pride and become like Mary and Peter. We need to have the courage to acknowledge our sin, our mistakes, and how desperate we are for him. And then we just need to surrender. And what is surrendering? It's it's. It's, it's throwing ourself, it's throwing our entire life into Jesus, and that's all we can do. It's, it's the only thing we can give to Jesus is ourself. And when we do this, the promise of the Bible is that there will be such an explosion of life, of resurrection life. And so maybe today you look at where you are and you see that you've drifted from God, you've drifted from Christ, you're a long way away. Admit that and repent and turn back. In the Bible, repentance was always done publicly. It was never done privately. It was always done in community because you show your need. And you didn't just re- repent in your heart, but, but they literally uh, had bowls of water uh, called mikvah where, where you'd come and, and you'd return to God and you would wash and you wouldn't just pray, God, wash me, but you would say, God, wash my hands, wash my head, my mind, my thoughts, my mouth for the things I've said, my heart for, for all the illicit loves and the things that I've willed, my feet for the places I've gone. And maybe you're there today. Or maybe you've never thrown your life into Jesus Christ. And today, if you wanna do that, just pray this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, I'm so tired of living for myself, living to exalt myself, striving to protect myself, prove myself. And I admit right now that I am weaker, I'm more sinful than I ever before believed, but through you, Jesus, I am more loved, I am more accepted than I could ever dream. I thank you for paying my debt, for bearing my punishment, for offering forgiveness, for making me whole. I turn right now, Jesus, from my sin. I throw my life, all of it, into you. And I receive you as my savior, as my king. Amen.